0: All right, look, that passage is before you on page 1022 of those Blue Pew Bibles. And then if you turn in your order of worship, um, it's the bottom of page 14. You can see a little bit of the outline of the sermon. Children, there are some children's pages right there that work on the memory verse. And uh, you can work on those and do a little bit of the word search as well. Adults, if you get distracted, by all means, take advantage of those things. Uh, But what we want to see here is what this passage has to teach us, and not just to teach us something, because it's hopeless if all you are going to do is receive teaching today. But what our hope is, is that God meets us here today and shows us the beauty of Christ, because He has made it clear that seeing Christ in all of His glory is what changes women and men, what changes us who are image bearers of God, to be more and more like Jesus. And this passage is a bold passage. You see there my main point, and I want to state it to you very clearly, all right? That you all, as sons and daughters of God, children of God, and this might be one of those places where we ought to stay with this idea of sons of God for a minute. And the reason I want to encourage that is because what we have in union with Christ isn't just children of God, sons and daughters of God, but we have every right of the firstborn of the Father, every right of the firstborn son. You see, this idea of of being sons of God isn't to the exclusion of women. It's not what this is about at all. It is to the inclusion of everything that is ours in Christ. And so I do want to say that we are sons and daughters. I want to make sure that everybody recognizes our identity is in Christ. But as children of God, as children of God, we want to hear this. You all are children of God because of His transforming love. And therefore, you are enabled to practice righteousness and to sin no more. That's provocative, isn't it? And you think, Bradley, if you're being provocative for your own sake, then there's no sense in being provocative. And you're exactly right. But isn't that exactly what John just says? Look down in verse 6 and down in verse 9 if you want to read it for yourself. That we, as God's children, are enabled to practice righteousness and to sin no more. Now, we're going to get to that. Don't worry but I want to recognize the tension that's before us right in the very beginning because we have three points of application that I want to make in this sermon, all right? And you can see them written right there. The first are going to come in verses 28 and 29. Know your true identity. That we ought to know our true identity. The second application is set your hope on Jesus. And then the last application is live in Christ. That's what we're going to look at. When I think of tension, I think of my high school. And it isn't because high school is filled with tension. and It is definitely filled with tension, but in high school was the first time I ever tried to start tightrope walking. I don't know if any of you have ever tried to do this. Uh, We would take these static ropes and through a series of knots, we would tie it in between two trees. And this was before what some of you children know of as slacklining. We would tighten this rope so tight, tighter and tighter and tighter. Finally, it was so tight that it almost plucked a note when you stood on it and fell. But the question was, on this tightrope, could we walk? Could we stand? Could we turn? Could we play? How is it even possible? What do you do with that tension? And I want to say that John introduces tension to us today even as he calls us dearly loved children, beloved children. The first thing that I want you to see is as he says that we are sons and daughters of God because of God's transforming love, we are enabled to practice righteousness and to sin no more. The first thing that this does is it teaches us our true identity. Look at verses 28 and 29 again, right there on 1022 of your Bibles. And now little children. And I'm convinced the more I hear John talk about us as little children, it isn't just his fatherly affection. It's him re-emphasizing for us God's affection for us as his daughters and sons, his children. He says, And now little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know... That he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The application of these verses is know your true identity. And the way that John says we can know our true identity is if we practice righteousness. We can know that we are born of God. The question comes to each of us who are you? I've told you that that was one of the most profound counseling moments of our marriage when a counselor asked me in front of Mita Bradley, who are you? And I struggled to answer the question. I don't know. I'm I'm a sinner. I'm I'm, I'm saved. I'm, I'm Bradley. What do you mean? And his answer was, you're a child of God, dearly loved by the Father. And I remember responding and saying, that's what I meant to say. And he goes, but you didn't. Right? And he got me. And maybe in light of a profound failure in your life, you are asking the question, who am I? Who am I? That age-old question, know thyself. Older than the Greeks. All the way back into the temples of the Egyptians. That question. God says the way that we know who we are is whether or not we practice righteousness. And that those who practice righteousness as surely as Christ is righteous, are born of God. You see, this idea of God being the Father isn't new to the New Testament. You can look through the book of Deuteronomy, and at least five different times, God says that I am like a man, and you, the nation of Israel, are like my son. And in fact, in Isaiah, Isaiah writes on behalf of the voice of God's people, and when they cry out for mercy... The mercy that Nathan just taught us about in that song, though our sins are many, his mercy is more. The nation of Israel cries out in Isaiah 63, you are our father, will you show mercy to us? This idea is also picked up when God says, look, I'm going to transform you. I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. Ezekiel 36, children, you could sing that song to us. You learned it thanks to Nathan's song. But it is brand new in the New Testament that these images, this picture of us as God's children, that us as those with new hearts and new spirits would cry out to God. Listen to how John writes it in John 1, verse 12. He says this, But to all who did receive Him, who did receive Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This new identity, believing in Christ, receiving Him, gives us the right to become children of God. This idea that we cry out to God, Abba, Father, with all of the rights of the firstborn because of who Jesus is and because of what He did for us. 1987 isn't just the best year for Land Cruisers, a really good year for movies as well. Princess Bride, right? You know it. You know it. And you know the one character in the Princess Bride who knew his identity. Who was it? You know. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. And what does he say? You killed my father and prepare to die. And he introduces himself that way the whole time. I'm fighting after the man who has six fingers. I know who I am, and I'm going to go after him. Prince Humperdinck was the one that he was trying to kill. And Inigo Montoya was mortally wounded. At least you thought that he was. And Prince Humperdinck said, You're dead now. Won't you give up? And instead, Inigo Montoya said, Hello! You know it, right? My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die right? And he gets up and he goes after him and Humperdinck goes, you are driven. You are driven by an overdeveloped sense of vengeance. But he knew who he was. And the father John, the gospel writer John, the patriarch John, the old man John, John the beloved of Jesus, reminds the children, remember who you are that you are children of God, born of God. Be sure that anyone who practices righteousness, as sure as Christ is righteous, is born of God. This first application is know your true identity. Who are you? The second application point comes from the next few verses in chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. And I've said it this way. Set your hope on Jesus. Your identity, church, as those who have put your faith and trust in Christ, you have received the right to be called children of God, your true identity is now to set your hope on Christ. To set your hope on Him. To set your eyes on Him. Remember who's writing this. John. John refers to himself in that In the Gospel of John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. The picture that we have of the Last Supper is of John laying his head on the chest of Jesus. John is the one who knew Jesus. John tells us in the first chapter of 1 John, I'm writing these things to you about the one who we touched, who we heard, who we saw with our eyes, and we beheld him. And I'm telling you who He is so that your joy might be made complete. And listen to what John says, why we should set our eyes on Jesus. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Not the best translation, some might argue, in this translation of our Bible. The NIV actually says, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Better, this magnitude of God's love that He lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Says that the world doesn't value that kind of love. The reason why the world does not know us as children of God is that it did not know Him, Jesus, as the Son of God. But then as if we needed to hear it again, John says, beloved, we are God's children now. Again, this identity. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him, Jesus, purifies Himself as He, Jesus, is pure." John is saying, set your hope on Christ. He's saying the idea of being a child of God is of no value to the world because the world didn't value that Jesus was the Son of God either. And yet John, who knew Jesus intimately, personally, who had touched Him, who had held Him, who had seen Him, who had heard Him, said this is the Son of God. Paul says that as we gaze upon Christ... He wrote this to the Corinthians in his second letter to the Corinthians. As we gaze upon Christ and we understand who He is, that's the power at which we are actually transformed. We are changed as women and men created in His image. We become more like Jesus when we behold Him. When we see who Jesus is, we are actually changed. These verses right here say that what we will be isn't known to us yet. John says, look, you're children of God now in the condition that you're in. And what you're going to become is unknown to us. The glory that Jesus is going to have being the glory of the only begotten Son of God enthroned at the right hand of God when He appears is a glory that we don't even understand. That John said, it's going to be beyond anything that I've even known. But John says, we're going to be like Him when we see Him. And then he says that we ought to have this kind of confidence when he comes back. That's actually back here in verse 28. You see it, that we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. But when Jesus comes, we would be filled with confidence. This idea that confidence in setting our hope on him, abiding in him, focusing on him, leads us in our lives. We just read or just sang in one of the songs that we sang that our confidence allows us to move toward God. We see that in Hebrews 2, in Hebrews chapter 4, that because Jesus is seated at the right hand, we can have confidence to go before him, asking for the grace and the mercy to help us in our time of need. That great song that we sing, Arise, my soul, arise. Wesley goes on and writes, and he says this The Father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his Son. The Spirit answers to the blood and tells me, I am born of God. My God is reconciled, this verse that you know. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child, I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. We have confidence when we abide in Christ. John said, set your hopes on Him coming back. This was the apostle who knew Jesus, and he longed for Jesus to come back. This year marks 25 years for Mita and I to be married we've gotten to the place where we're actually no good apart from each other anymore. One of the things that we complain about more than anything else else is that we can't sleep anymore apart from each other. And we look forward to being back together. Those of you who have lost parents, you've lost a loved one, you think oftentimes, I can't wait to be reunited with them. And I want to say the magnitude of that is multiple times greater as John understood it, longing for Christ to be back, to be in the glory that he knew when Christ walked with him, when he embraced him. John is the one who walked with Jesus. I think I've told you this before, but you know that I liked that movie, The The Risen. It came out around Easter, maybe two or three years ago. Most of those movies about Jesus and, and, and about Easter kind of land flat for me, and I wasn't expecting much until Jesus appeared to His disciples. And with the compassion and the mercy with which He treated Peter, who had betrayed Him, I found myself weeping, longing to know what it was like to be embraced by Christ like that. Here, John tells us, as dearly loved children of God, set our hope on him and that everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The second application of this text is to set our hope on Jesus, to focus on him, on on his return, his coming. The third application is found in verses 4 through 10, live in Christ. This language is about practice, practice. This language is about our action. This language starts off and says, everyone who practices, who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. And then here's the verse to settle on. The verse that was repeated already. In verse 29, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. That to live in Christ is to practice righteousness. To live in Christ is to abide by God's law, is what it means. To abide in Christ is It's not the don't of the law that focuses us on the temptation, but it's the do, abide in Christ, that focuses us on Christ. Verse 7, like 29, reminds us that this is a sure way for us to avoid deception. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. He goes on from there to talk about those who practice sinning Not being of God, but actually being of the devil. You remember that. That's what Jesus said of the Pharisees. You're just like your father. And they said, God is our father. And Jesus says, no, your father is of the devil who has been sinning from the beginning, even as John tells us here. What we hear here is that actions speak louder than words. That the practice of righteousness is the place that the quote in the front of our order of worship is that which gives us encouragement that our profession is true. The practice of righteousness. And as that quote says, surely our practice does not justify us before God, but rather gives proof that God is at work in us, that we are His children, that we belong to Him. He goes on to say in verses 6 and verses 9, and here's the tension. Listen to it again. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And even bolder in verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. John introduces to us in this radical way the possibility of sinlessness. He defines sin as lawlessness. He says that right there in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. One of the ways that we live in Christ is we take sin seriously. We stop calling them picadillos. We stop calling them small missteps, we realize that sin is sin and it is an offense, an oppositional action toward God. Lawlessness, wrongdoing is another way that John talks about sin, that sin is serious. And John says that those who have been born of God no longer sin. This is hard to hold. This is tense, isn't it? And if you've been here long enough and you've listened to John speak, you know that John is not saying that those in the church don't experience sin in their lives, is he? I mean, as Dan already told you with great optimism that you've read it eight times already this week and that you read it again in the confession of sin, what does it say right there? See if I can turn back there without losing my train of thought. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. John recognizes that we are sinful, that we experience sin. And yet he says here, those who are born of God don't sin anymore. And we've got to hold this tension in our hearts. John also says in the fifth chapter, If you want to turn to it, verse 16, he says, if we see any of us committing sin that doesn't lead to death, and we're going to get to that when we get there, he says we can pray for one another and forgiveness happens. So what does John mean here? What do we do with this tension here? In any way that you and I want to squirm out from underneath this tension ends up being less than effective for us. It is the tension in which we live, that we don't squirm out of it. There are lots of ways that the commentators have talked about this. They have said one of the ways that needs to be dismissed right away is that John had super-Christians in mind. That's not what John believes at all. John speaks to the church, not to super-Christians. Another way that the commentators have, you know, wondered is maybe John is differentiating between types of sin, those types that are deliberate and, and those types that are accidental, the types of sin that are involuntary, that is like when you get cut off when somebody's driving and, and, and breaks a traffic law in front of you, or, or even when you, in your own self-righteousness, break a traffic law and want to blame it on somebody else, versus the voluntary sins. But there's no evidence in 1 John that he is working between sins, like this category versus this category. Some have argued that what he's saying is more of what the NIV says, those who sin habitually and go on continuing to sin. But it's a press for the grammar of what's actually going on in the Greek when we read it that way. It's a press for this idea that in in, in this situation, because it's really hard to understand, let's say it actually keeps on sinning habitually instead of just some sin. But see, it's inconsistent because he uses different grammar in different ways throughout the whole thing, and you can't find this consistent pattern that lets us off the hook. In fact, about the only way to receive what John says is to just receive it. That for the Christian, because of our union with Christ, there is a possibility to not sin anymore. Period. Full stop. And then we go, what is the magnitude of this unity with Christ that makes it so that we might not sin anymore, but abide in Him The language that is most helpful to me is the language that says John is describing what is true of a Christian in its ideal end of time perfected way. And he says, you who are in Christ don't sin anymore. And yet it also has this condition there of abiding in Christ. But even that doesn't relieve the tension for us, does it? It doesn't. And John leaves us in that tension. That those who have been born of God's transforming love, you are children of God, daughters and sons of the King, enabled to practice righteousness and also enabled to sin no more. What do we do in light of that tension? There are two things that John gives us, right? Chapter 2, verse 1. If we sin, we know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation, the wrath absorber for our sins. Think about how much John values the blood of Christ shed for him. He knew Jesus, saw him, heard him, touched him, beheld him, he says. And he says, remember who we have. The value of who Christ is. Not an overdeveloped sense of judgment, of vengeance, but one of gratitude, of the magnitude of Jesus to whom we are united John says, think about him, abide in him so that you don't sin anymore. And then he also says in the fifth chapter, we have the opportunity to intercede for one another. In our sin, when we see each other sin, this idea of intercessory prayer that we might know God's mercy. John takes sin seriously. And in this section of scripture, we see that we, our true identity, is as children of God. Transformed by God's love. Those who believe Him and received Him, He's given the right to become children of God. And that's what we are. And that because of that, we are enabled to practice righteousness. We no longer have the excuse, I can't do that. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are sons and daughters of the King, enabled not to sin. As one commentator says it this way, it is as our hearts are filled with love by the Spirit that they, our hearts, become incapable of harboring sinful desires. Wow! This stops all of us, doesn't it? Because John's about to go into the definition of what it means for us to love one another. What it means to love other sinful human beings. And I'm telling you what we need to know that, to love one another, the people sitting across from you and next to you and behind you and in front of you in the pews. We need to know the power of God's transforming love made known to us in the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. I told you that this is tense. That John introduces for us a responsibility in our lives to practice righteousness and to stop sinning. I told you that this tension reminds me of a tightrope walk. Do you want to know what the trick to tightrope walking is? I got pretty good at it in high school. I'd be interested to know if I could do it anymore. I, I, I doubt it. You know, my, my, my reflexes, I'm sure, have gotten worse. But you want to know what the trick is? It's to fix your eyes on the anchored portion of the rope. To fix your eyes on that knot and don't look anywhere else. Don't look at your feet. Don't look at your arms and your legs. Don't look at everything that's around you. Fix your eyes on that portion of the rope that's tied to the tree and look at it and find your balance and your focus there. And in the same way John is telling us here, fix your eyes on Christ. Abide in Him. Practice right action. Righteousness, right doing. Flee sin. Don't practice sin anymore. You have the ability. This is amazing. I, remind, I remembered a song that I used to sing. And it was this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. This is the word that's for us today. Let's not relieve the tension by making it say something less than what it says. Let's allow that tension to lead us to Jesus who has paid the price for our sin. Run to the table with me now. Let's pray.